of Tokyo, the rules of racing have changed. It's called drifting. And if you want to win... Who's the tourist? I want to see what the kids got. You have to lose control. Now what, Pope? Come on! The Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. Ready PG-13. Starts June 16th. Hello friends, and welcome to the most glorious of events, the Movie Mavericks Podcast. This outstanding program is hosted by two fine gentlemen, Jason and Trevor. Now make it so. MovieMavericks.com Hey now everyone, welcome to a special episode of the Movie Mavericks Podcast. I'm Trevor Anderson, sending you over to Jason Rugard. He's got a rundown for us. On tonight's retrospective episode, we are continuing our look back at the threequels, the third entry in franchises to go along with it being 2023, as we had discussed on the last retrospective, which I think was Ninja 3. Before we get into the podcast, please, I want to remind everybody, if you're listening to this on Apple, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, whatever you may be getting this podcast through, please like the show, rate, review it, pass it, share it along. Um, it helps the show grow and uh, continues giving you good episodes like this. But let's get back into it. Trevor, did you enjoy going back and looking at Tokyo Drift, which is officially the third release in the Fast and Furious franchise? Yes, I did. Really? <laughs> this is a, uh, I thought this was great. Yeah, I thought it was just a, it was a nice, simple action movie. Yeah, I still I still liked it. I liked it when I saw it, what, 25 years ago almost? Uh, no, it's 16 years uh, no, ago no, no. now. 2006. 16, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, 17 um, now as we sit. I, I enjoyed it. I, I still think it's a, it's a nice moving movie. It's it's well-crafted, well-directed. Uh, the flow is really great. Some of the dialogue's not so fantastic. Josh, or um, what's his name? Luke, Lucas Black. Lucas Black. It sometimes gives a, a stiff delivery, but it still works, I think, because his character is kind of... Uh, a stiff person anyways i enjoyed it you did not you did not like it i really liked it when we first saw this in theaters and going back and watching it today a couple of things struck me and i didn't enjoy it nearly as much as i thought i was going to we've talked about this over the years how we kind of felt that this was for for a long time the overlooked one in the franchise although i think that's been rectified now that they brought some of these characters back for fast and furious 9 you know they they kind of tied some loose ends up there um, so it's not the little engine that could anymore in the terms of being overlooked in the series. It actually plays a fairly important part in the series. But as a standalone feature of the time, I really enjoyed it. But today, we're looking at it, it just didn't deliver for me like I thought it would. And I think a lot of it had to do with how small this movie is. If, if 
any of the Fast and Furious movies feel like a B movie, I think this feels the most B movie of them all. Well, they're all B movies. I don't know what you mean by B movie. Not a, one of these is an A movie in the sense of what an A movie actually would have, would be, right? These are all very expensive B movies. But yeah, this is definitely like the, the closest to a direct video that you get out of the group. It's a small movie. They couldn't get back any of the regular cast. And so they focused more on the cars rather than uh, on a heist or rather than on any sort of other action-y type thing that these that the characters could do or do normally do in a Fast and Furious movie. Here they're just racing and specifically they're drifting, which is built into the title. And so I, I thought it worked. You know, it, it's uh, it's so simple and straight to the point. I, I think it works. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not that the movie is bad by any stretch of the imagination. I just didn't enjoy it to the level that I had before where I thought it was maybe the best in the series this time. But my, are you my... enjoying the other ones so much? Why, uh, you what know, is it about the newer ones then that makes you enjoy I, them? I, 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 mean, I specifically like this because it's because it's not. it doesn't go, I won't, I won't say the extra mile, because the other ones go about a, a bajillion miles beyond where they probably should. This came out in 2006, right? In June of 2006. And it had been four years since Too Fast, Too Furious had come out. The series was in, in absolute disarray. They didn't know what direction it was going into. Well, this saved the franchise. This is the Absolutely. movie. Absolutely. I mean, Justin Lin, the director here, this could have easily, you brought up directed DVD, this could have easily ended up in Scorpion King 2 or Death Race 2 or uh, Tremors type territory where. A universal home video release with a, a title that they're just milking for money. You got to give them credit for Universal Execs for greenlighting this deviation from what had come before it. But having done that, it stood out as a good sequel in a summer of sequels of 2006 because that summer we had, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean sequel. You had an X Men sequel. You had a Mission Impossible sequel. There was a lot of sequels that summer, and this one, at the time, really stood out to me because it was a bit of a breath of fresh air in that I didn't know what I was getting going in because my expectations were very low. And so it over delivered for me at the time. And it's undeniable that Justin Lin does a very, very good job with this. He's a USC graduate, just like John Singleton was on the previous film. And he had come from an indie film background and brought some of those actors with him. And that really, I think, is what makes the difference in this being a cut above. You can see, movie. you can see a, a, a real director at work here, which is why I would undoubtedly understand why Universal gave him the franchise after this, even though this didn't perform that well. And I get why, and everyone made fun of it, even though drifting was all over the damn place mm -hmm. uh, for some reason for a short while there. I don't think it was because of this movie, but regardless, uh, that didn't entice anyone to uh, to take this any more seriously. For me, yeah, I watch this and I think, oh yeah, give this guy a bigger budget, give this guy a bigger movie, and they did, and what happened to this franchise, it took off. Absolutely, and he is the savior of the franchise, that's why this is an important entry in a lot of ways, because it brings him into the fold, and he's the man, Justin Lin, we're speaking of, the director of this, the man most directly responsible outside of Chris Morgan, the scripter, for shaping this franchise into the, the behemoth that it is currently, we're awaiting as we record this, the 10th installment to come out just a little over a month's time. So this thing, this money-generating machine keeps going and going. And this was at a time when this movie was released where Universal didn't know what the next step was would be, but the returns on this were good enough that they decided to go ahead and do a part four. Do you know the timeline of this? Do you know where this takes place in this? Even though this is the third released, but chronologically in the series, do you know where this takes place? I don't anymore. I mean, I, I remember bizarre. when this came out, 
all this timeline uh, nonsense back in the day, but I have long since forgotten any of that. So if you know, fill us in. I'm only going to tell you because I recently saw this. Uh, it was it was playing on a hotel TV, and it cut to the sequence, and I thought, no shit, and I had to look it up. This movie takes place during the first act of Furious 7. How bizarre is that? Vin Diesel leaves Dwayne Johnson's hospital bed in Furious 7 in the opening act and says, I'm going to Tokyo. Yeah. Then comes and has this little adventure and then goes back and finishes off Furious 7. So that's technically where this, this movie lands in the series chronological order if you're doing like a Marvel Phase 1, 2, and 3 kind of thing. Right. You got to give it up for Chris Morgan, the screenwriter here, who I believe this is his first entry and then would take on scripting duty henceforth for coming up with not only a, a story that fits within the world, but then retroactively making it fit into everything that would come later and before it. I mean, because this movie is what most notable for introducing Han, the character of Han, to the series, I'd say, outside right. of Justin Lin, obviously. Yeah, and that's something else that I really liked about this movie is that is the character introductions are fun in this. Actually, the whole the flow of the movie is is really fantastic, but that includes the character introductions. And when you first see Han, he's of course in the background, but you know right away the way he's shot, the way he looks, uh, is watching things unfold and everything. You know that's going to be a main character, and that's this movie is like on the mark, you know, when it comes to that kind of stuff. And he has such charisma, that actor who plays Han, uh, that it was clear. Uh, that they were going to have to reuse him in some fashion. And I I'm not upset that they did. I've always liked that that character in the series. What Justin Lin did was take a lot of his troupe, his acting troupe, from his independent films and use them in this, just like how John Singleton brought Tyrese from his independent film or his lower-budgeted films into the big-budget franchise and, and made a star out of him. There's a lot of odd s series similarities I saw here. I mean, it continues that series oddity of casting uh you know an african-american rapper as a sidekick or a supporting character in, in bow wow in this you know that that continued with tyrese with ja rule it would go on with Ludacris. it just there's a lot of uh tropes of the series that this has and i, I wonder if that's was planned out if that was marketing if that was inadvertently or, or i'd let have you heard oh, the director's but... commentary on this at all do you ever hear it no yeah me neither mm -hmm. I, i'd love to listen to it actually do um i mean i would argue that that that's secondary or inconsequential specifically to this um, franchise. Cause I remember there was a time when uh, every rapper like that tried to cross over into action movies. That is true. Steven Seagal had a slew of movies with, with rappers. Yeah, I mean, DMX is all over the place. There's an absolute ton of them. Ice T. Yeah. Uh, an absolute shitload that went straight into action movies um, doing stuff like what all these guys did. So I don't know if this was just an open, you know, an available spot on the the roster there for these guys to just jump in, you know. For soundtrack reasons, these always had a soundtrack accompany, and I think that they had a a hip hop flair to it. So yeah, they probably had some in the, sort of in the zeitgeist of of this type of a thing. Did you recall in the last? Did you see Fast Nine? Yeah. Do you recall I, that I don't know. the three Maybe. main <laughs> characters of this got they all blend together? <laughs> got reintroduced in Fast Nine. They were helping them get shot into space. Right, right. So they did bring yes, back... I do remember that. This, these, these characters. If you had asked me, like I said, pre-Fast 9, I would have said that this may have been the most inconsequential entry, but now I think that Part 4 is actually the most inconsequential entry in terms of the overall series arc. And I, I think Part 4 is fantastic. 
I mean, I'm going to agree with you on that because Ford, they didn't know where they were going. They didn't know this was possible, right? They didn't really know that they were rebooting the franchise. They probably didn't really know how. They wanted to stay true to something from the original, right? But but now they're starting something new. So that is kind of the one that wobbles there, you know? Whereas after that one, this franchise knows exactly where it's going. It's going to the moon. <laughs> Literally. Right. It's going to, yeah. It, they're superheroes at some point. Like they're just, they're doing all kinds of shit. They're doing, we're doing everything, you know? Um, and... Yeah, it just constantly tries to one-up itself for ridiculousness, right, as far as action goes. So it finds its way after that. But you're right. I think that because this third installment here is it, nothing to do with the franchise, really. This is like its own movie, its own thing. It knows what it is. But the fourth one, it feels like it's feeling out the franchise again. Like, like okay, we're, the original people are back. And so I often wonder how would this – would – the third installment, if they had brought back the original cast, this movie simply, I think, would just not exist, and we would just get number four. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. So, which is another reason I think it's fantastic that this movie exists, that they had to do it with a low budget, that they couldn't get anyone back. Nobody had any faith. No one gave a shit about this movie, and it turns out to be great. You know, these are, these are the kind of movies that I like, these little hidden gems. And that's what I think was so surprising when I saw it in a theater, because I thought, how many different ways can you shoot a car? I felt like I had seen over the course of two movies, what two good directors in Rob Cohen and John Singleton, who did the first and second respectively, what they could do with the medium. And I didn't think that there was going to be anything new, but Justin Lin did find a way to get things done. And it's, he even, you know, his, his style and his inventiveness and, and what they were able to achieve has obviously gone way up since then. But even on here, it's very obvious that he has a love for big, big budget filmmaking, not just indie films, which is what he had launched his career doing, but this large Hollywood canvas type stuff. And he's very good here. I mean, the, the way he shoots the action is exquisite. Tell me, when you watch this movie, this is a movie that feels like this is shot, this is edited the way it's shot. You feel like this just fell into place. I mean, maybe that's not true, but that's how this movie feels. I mean, like the flow of the, of the whole thing from camera angles to, to dialogue, to, to timing, to everything just feels like it just fell into place. You got to give it up too for director Justin Lin for casting the eldest sibling in Home Improvement as the villain in the I know, first scene. I right? Good on him for giving Good that kid some work. Yeah, right. I mean that. You know, they, 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 those kids used to pop up, you know, and things. Uh, even in 2006, it was odd to see him pop up and shit. And I don't think I've seen him in anything post. Still, this movie. still playing a teenager. <laughs> yeah, right. Still look like a prick, to be honest with you. He's probably mm. a nice guy though in real life. It is weird though. For this, and there's a lot of movies and even TV shows back in the day that, that played this type of thing out with the guy from the wrong side of, of town, like coming into like the rich kids area, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, I'm thinking of like the OC, obviously, for like TV and stuff, but there were a bunch of movies um, that, that did similar things. And specifically, I, because of the housing track, which is in something that is in a lot of these movies and TV shows, which I don't know why, but it's in this as well. Yeah, that was almost a trope for a while. Like kids were hanging out in, a, in an odd one. Yeah. I don't get why racing through them, and, and it's where all this kind of trouble or mayhem would happen in the show. Like in the OC, there's literally a thing. There's a movie. What was the movie with Jeff Bridges where the girl was uh, the gymnastics movie? I can't remember what that movie's called. Stick it, stick it, stick it. Which is stick it's basically Tokyo Drift. It, weird as shit. I don't understand why this stuff. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where everyone, I guess, had the same idea all at once 
I not only didn't know that Stick It was Tokyo Drift, I didn't know that you had seen Stick It. I like Stick It, actually, because it's one of these types of movies or things. But literally the beginning of that movie takes place in there's a chase scene in a, a track home uh, thing that's being built. Just like the OC, uh, you know, in the sense where he goes. To, uh, it's weird, man. I think Never I Back Down has a sequence like that as well. Does it? I, uh, yeah, see, and that's around the same time, too. It's we, so weird. I think that's just weird. Yeah, it probably was. Something gets something seeps into everyone's minds at the same time or something. Easy production design. Well, you know, I do think that the movie really picks up, for me at least, about two-thirds of the way through when they have that fantastic chase that ultimately leads to Han's character being what we think is killed, which obviously if you've seen the series, he isn't, but that culminates that chase in his death, and I think that that to me is the high point of the movie in terms of action, and it's just fantastically staged. We're going to take a break here for a second and let you listen to Justin Lin discuss how this movie was filmed in different cities, and not a whole lot of it was actually filmed in Tokyo. I think, you know, it's it, it, it's a challenge. I mean, it, it's it's... Like for example, it's a challenge to make a to, to shoot car chases to begin with, you know. But the fact that we're supposed to be in Tokyo, and it's impossible to shoot chases in Tokyo, and I wanted a Tokyo chase, we actually had to shoot in two different cities for it. So instead of you know, on top of your normal challenges, we had to bring two cities into one and make it one, you know, continuous chase. Um, but there's challenges in, in filmmaking, no matter what you do, whether it's even two people in a room, you're going to have challenges. Um, but even here, you know, uh, going into Tokyo and where they're very respectful of, you know, their citizens and the community, they don't give out film permits. So you're, you know, you're, you're going and, and we have these huge crews and we have no permit. You know, we can get shut down at any time, you know, but that's fun. That's part of going there and, and learning and, and, and dealing with it. Well, it sounds like this was an absolute pain in the ass to make, and it's seamless on screen. I wouldn't have been able to tell you that this wasn't shot entirely on location. Would that surprise you as well? The movie obviously does a very good job of looking like it takes place in Tokyo and Japan in general. I mean, movies get away with establishing shots, you know what I mean, and then go into into tighter shots and, and tighter areas, and that could be anywhere. It's such an odd choice to cast Lucas Black in the lead role here, right? Because I liked the kid in Friday Night Lights and a couple Mm -hmm. other things that I had seen him in, but he is extremely low-key to the point where I don't really (laughs) appreciate him at all in this role. I I think he's almost charisma-free. There are... I don't know. There are moments that I think, okay, this works. And then there are moments, I think especially when he has to deliver dialogue is particularly bad. But if he just has to have a look, like when he's first, when when the movie opens and the guy throws the, the, you know, Brad throws the ball into his car, breaks his window, and he steps out and he's just sitting there and that smile on his face, that's perfect. Mm Mm-hmm. I thought that was great, you know, and, and he drops the, the wrench down. They're like, uh, and he just keeps that smile on his face. That's fantastic. He looks great doing that. But then when he has to deliver some sort of dialogue to anyone, it just comes off as very wooden. You know? I would even go so far as to say that sequence. As if he's reciting it. At the end mm-hmm. of the sequence when they end up in the hospital and he smiles at the girl with a mouthful of broken, bloody teeth. I think that's a great little moment. Yeah. But I think he also looks like a 47-year-old man 
who's had a hard life. Oh, but they all they all do. It's it's unbelievable. <laughs> There's not a person in this movie that looks like the age that they're supposed to be. <laughs> That's absolutely true. So I don't know what to do with that other than hey, I just, you just chalk that up to like that was and that was the time period. You know, I they do a much better job of casting people who clearly are above age but who look super young now. I, they just do that better now than they did back then. I don't know. I would say that if the, I'm going to propose this to you here. If this movie had been made in 2008 or 9, let's say, instead of 2006, I think mm-hmm. I know who they would have tried to cast in the lead role. A very young Channing Tatum. I could see them doing that. I mean, yeah. Would have worked, they too. They look very similar. Uh, would have worked in this role. I think maybe even better than Lucas Black did. Would have fit into the series a little bit uh, more seamlessly. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess. I see where you're going with that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they, they missed the boat I mean, on that one. Yeah. I don't think anyone, I don't think any casting would have helped this or would have, you know, put this into the franchise more. As you say, what what they did was they had to, to like, work this in later on in, in a weird way. What do you think of the Vin Diesel cameo at the end? Because that was a lot of, you know, there was a big hoopla around the movie when it came out that, oh, there's a big surprise ending and it turned out to be Vin Diesel's character kind of wrapping it up. But we know, mm-hmm. or, you know, we know, but I don't know if our listeners know. So just quickly on the backstory here, Vin Diesel agreed to do this cameo for Universal agreeing to give him the rights to the Riddick series, which allowed him and David Twohey to make the third entry, I think, uh, about six or seven years on down the road. So uh, it, that's basically why he did this. It wasn't for love of the franchise by any stretch of the imagination. Honestly, it, it, aren't you happy that it's just at the end of the movie and there, is, there isn't some stupid fucking credit sequence and then, then it shows up? <laughs> I, I thought that Han's <laughs> presence in the movie was supposed to be to basically take care of the Vin Diesel hole, and I thought he did a pretty good job filling that gap. But they just wanted to throw Vin Diesel in. Just to remind you, in case you forgot, this is a Fast and the Furious Yeah, because he's going to fucking drift in a Chevy, you know? It's like, stop Cause it. it. I know, that was the funniest. That's exactly what I thought when they, when they kill us race. And it's just like, uh, you're in the wrong car <laughs> i i get too caught up in logistics in these movies you know he goes i'm going to tokyo and i just think okay you got there how'd you get that fucking car to tokyo did you get that shipped on a steamliner did it take about three weeks or did they just um airdrop that in like you know what i mean like i want to know well the yeah way- you've seen the franchise you know how i got it there yeah he probably flew it there i mean literally flew in the car he had wings probably popped out and he flew on over there yeah i mean they can put cars on top of glaciers i'm sure they can uh, get it through tunnels but yeah i thought of that too i was like how is he gonna get that damn car through those um those parking garage stairways uh, you just shift you shift and then you're that solves your problems it makes you go faster it makes you give more control of the car it makes you uh fly you can pop wheelies i don't know you can do all kinds of shit if you just shift oh, all i've learned that's what i've, that's what I've learned <laughs> about all i learned about street racing through the fast and furious movies is that if you have nos you and whoever hits that at the correct oh, time wins yes it's it's the juice button in the video game well, it's the crane kick of the of the franchise you <laughs> it know? truly is the crane kick of the <laughs> franchise <laughs> Oh, that's fucking fantastic. <laughs> it's the crane kick of the franchise. Oh, my goodness. That's perfect. I mean, that's, that right. should be on a poster somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
think here uh, before we we wrap up the episode i want to know what your thoughts were on the big disclaimer that came at the end of the movie did you notice that when the the credits rolled yes i know i thought that was funny they're like it's basically a don't try this at home but it was worded like uh i mean for anyone who's going to try this at home i don't think they would understand they would be able to read that language it like, was okay. literally legalese it's like mean- a whole paragraph yeah i know <laughs> It was it was like a lawyer had drafted that. They had to put it up the second that the credit before the credits rolled. And if you recall the original release of Fast and Furious 1 on DVD back in uh, late 2001 had a public service announcement before the movie by Paul Walker where he begged people not to do these stunts because a lot of people were getting out of theaters and drag racing and getting into major accidents at the time and it was a concern. I mean, you can Google it. There's news articles, I'm sure, on the Internet Archive about it. And it's it's interesting that they went so far as to put it as part of the movie here. But are you aware of the Fast and Furious rollouts? Uh, no. My, my stepbrother <laughs> is part of the car culture in uh, the Oakland area here. And whenever one of these movies comes out, they all go, and when I say all, anybody with a car that they kind of want to show off, whether it's a souped up oldie, newie, whatever, hydraulics, the whole thing. They go to a, a drive-in, they watch the movie, and a hundred or so cars will all leave at the same time, block off a road, and do what they call a sideshow, which you can see videos of on YouTube, which is burnouts, races, fights. It's basically a Fast and Furious movie. So these movies themselves have spawned like meetups and and subcultures i didn't know they would watch the movie and do that yeah, yeah no i've uh i yeah he's 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 a big aficionado That's interesting. yeah and uh hmm. especially to drive it on top of it and you know you, to see hundreds of cars or so all leaving and then blocking off roads and, and the cops pretty much just let them do their thing and like i said these are called sideshows you can see the the videos on youtube i'm sure they're they're out there if you don't know but regardless the fast and furious is a very influential franchise and for you, where does this sit on your overall love for the series? If you had to rank this and put it in your ranking, where does it sit? I think I would put this up right after the first one. Just because the first one stands alone, and I think this one stands alone. And, uh, and I really am not a fan of the second one very much. The rest of it is like the damn Marvel Universe to me. It's just a chock full of a lot of shit. And I don't know. I mean, to wade into that... Like, there's not even one of those movies that I just like, I'm just going to watch, like, Fast and Furious 8. It's like, well, why? It makes no sense. I got to watch all the other, you got to watch the whole fucking thing. Yeah, there's something to be said for standalone movies. I will say that. I think I would place it as my third favorite in the series. The first one will always be my favorite just because it was just, it was the coolest thing at the multiplexes that summer. It really was. It was just the, the hottest movie around. The fourth one is my second favorite because that's a standalone entry and it's kind of the ugly duckling of the series and I think it's a very lean and efficient film and I think that Justin Lin really started getting his style down that he would further perfect in part five and I think that this Tokyo Drift is my third favorite of the series. So even though I was knocking it, I do have to say it's on the upper tier. If you had to guess out of all of the movies in the series, which includes Hobbs and Shaw. Well, the spinoffs. Yeah, yeah. there's 10 then, as if we stand now, including Hobbs and Shaw. Yeah. Uh, which do you think has the highest Rotten Tomatoes critical score? I'm going to guess number two. I'm going to ask why you guessed that before I tell you the answer. Because I think it's a giant piece of crap. 
but it's probably this one's probably the third one. <laughs> you, so you think that the critics would would find the one that's the giant piece of crap the best? The critical score would be the best. Oh, you're saying the best one? Yeah. Oh, I thought you said the worst. No, let, let me start. Off. Which which of the which film in the series? Okay, do you think has the the the, yeah, the highest score? The highest, highest I, critical. For whatever score. reason, I heard lowest. Okay, but no, you're right about oh, that. You, By the way, part you said two critical. That's maybe that's why I hit that. You're right about that. Part two is the lowest square out of all the series by the way mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the word critical is what put me on that but okay this is the highest um oh um i don't know i'll guess eight part seven seven i was close yeah i mean it was the <laughs> if critical mass said that it was an emotional hit because of I knew the it was Paul somewhere Walker in stuff. there. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, the goodbye oh, and the way that that, that was handled sense, actually. Yeah. That I should have said that for that. Yeah. And this movie does have that kind of morbid, uh, I don't want to say curiosity, but there is kind of this morbidness to the series in a sense because of the Paul Walker death and the manner of which he died. And uh, this, these early entries are so far away from that that I don't, I feel like I'm not forced to think about that. You know, even if I watch part four or part one, we're, we're so far removed from, you know, the part seven when they have to deal with that kind of stuff. I guess even though they don't really deal with it, they just send this character off, right? I guess I know in the weirdest way possible. Yeah, it's it's a bizarre. This makes thing. no sense. It's like yeah, it's like you know what's happening on the outside of the movie, but the movie doesn't really know what the hell it's even doing. It's like it's like don't pay attention to reality. Uh, we'll just make something up here. Yeah, it's an absolutely beautiful oh, okay. sequence at the end there. I think I really do like that the way that's handled. But only because you know what's happening. Uh, if if you if, if Paul Walker hadn't really died, that would have been that would have been terrible ending. Absolutely, it, that would have been would have been horrible. Everyone would have hated ending. it. I mean, honestly, yeah, it would have been bad. So yeah. that's what I say. It's weird, right? It's, it's like an oddity. It's a double-edged sword that that could have been a total disaster that they turned into something that saved the series in a lot of ways mm-hmm. too. And it, to, ironically, that entry was directed by well, the, James it, Wan, who this, scored the best mm-hmm. entry in the series in a lot of people's eyes. I mean, the series was doing so well with both of them. I, it, it has lost something without Paul Walker. It has. I agree. I mean, it's, it's like obviously lost something without him. Do you think Paul Walker's absence is missed more than Dwayne Johnson's in the series? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> well, I mean, they're both big stars Who, of the series, but I think that Paul Walker's oh, way more but, integral. I mean, yeah, you, you have like a, a founding member member versus some guy that just showed up and was worked into the series. I'd be like Statham disappears from the series, from the series. No one's going to give a shit. Sean Hobbs can both go. doesn't matter. That's true. And they, I think that's the plan from here on forth. I don't even think that Statham is in this new entry. Um, I think Senna or Cena has taken over completely. Yeah. Well, we can't get rid of bad guys now either at this point. Everyone hangs on in this series. Like someone's got to go. It's so. like watching a GI Joe cartoon. Nobody actually dies. That they parachute out of the thing, or you know what I mean. The laser hits them, and they can be good revived. Good guys are bad guys, but they're still they're still good bad guys, and then they're good guys, and everyone's just hanging. Everyone just has a reason to do the shit they're doing. <laughs> so like, okay. This entry didn't pound home the theme of family over and over and over again. And I wasn't subject I think, to that oh, that, that is banality. The, that's what you missed, though, with Vin Diesel. He didn't hit that, you know. He should have. He should have. He should. His line should have been, "This is for Han. This is for family," and that should have been exactly. 
Um, one area we didn't cover yet was that Sonny Chiba <laughs> makes a, a brief appearance in this, who is a big uh-huh. Quentin Tarantino loves this guy, the, the Street Fighter films. Did mm-hmm. you care for him at all? Did you think the Yakuza stuff was out of place in a Fast and Furious movie? I completely felt that the Yakuza stuff was out of place here, but this is Fast and Furious, which is why I think they put it in here. Um, Cause they needed, someone had to point a gun at somebody, right? That's true. Um, otherwise it's just car racing. And I think they needed something nefarious behind that car racing. And uh, well, you're in Japan. What else, who else is there? What else is there? You know? And there was some fun stuff like when the Lucas black character, like do his, like earn his, his keep, so to speak, you know, and he has to go, f- get the big fat guy to give him the money and all that kind of jump through the hoops stuff that I thought was fun. So I, I, I thought that was a good sequence too. And I did think that it was a good scene when Sonny Chiba came in and told his nephew that his partner had been stealing from him because his, that's the moment when the villain in this piece becomes almost a sympathetic character because he's just, you know, he's a poser. He's not truly the, the bad guy. He's just a kid. Yeah, he, he's just a kid fucking around, which used to happen a lot in 80s movies like this in a lot of, you know what I mean? Because this is not an original story by any stretch of the imagination. And you used to have where a villain would be running something and then you'd find out he was just an underling ultimately and the real villain would come in halfway through and, and you know, present an even bigger challenge to the hero. It reminded me of some 80s type mm-hmm. action film. I mean, that's true. And then sometimes it didn't happen in this movie, but sometimes the humanity would be recognized and they would team up against the bad guy. That's true, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then the final scene where, you know, maybe they turned on each other. Maybe yeah. they didn't or they well, because they've been fighting each other for so long. So they earn each other's respect. You know? Yeah, I, I think we're writing a better film than what was presented to us <laughs> in Tokyo Drift. <laughs> I think it, seeing this on the big screen is also an overwhelming experience with these movies with the sound system and the way things look up there. It's something sure. is lost when these are on a smaller screen, obviously. these la- I agree with you totally that the last, from about five on, it's a blur of character and motion, and I don't really have a clear idea of the storyline. But I think that these standalone entries, three, four, I mean, really one through four, are my favorites as a collection of the series. You know, if you had to break it down into segments, I think the first four for me work the best. Yeah. It gets a bit ridiculous um, after those, you know, but I guess that's the charm of it. So people are enjoying just to go watch this. I don't know. I I guess I don't understand franchises like this. There are people watching these all the way through. I, I mean, I can already see much like the Harry Potter movies, the Lord of the Rings movies, the Marvel movies, Theaters are playing all the goddamn Fast and Furious movies. They are. May 9th, they're going to be coming back around. Yep. yep. Straight up to this one. So I guess people are still uh, doing that, watching wherever they choose to start, I guess, up to the new one. It's a bit much for me. Do you have any interest? If you had to go back and watch any of these on the big screen, if you you know had your choice to watch one through nine, which one would you go back and look at again? The first one. That's the right answer, yes. It's been a while since I've seen that one, and I think that would be... The funnest to see on the big screen again, to be honest with you. I, I don't know. I don't really want to see anything five and beyond you know, on big screen. I, I already have. Yeah. The first one. <laughs> just, I remember it. You know? Yeah. The first one, just because I remember it playing so well on a big screen, especially that uh, sequence when they're transferring the guy from the truck to the car so and he gets long. caught up on the. And that also that would have been filmed, but I the, the original would have been. Uh, shot on film. film. It was back when, when film, well, not shot on film, but projected on film. 100%. So that's why I think that would be the most interesting to go back and see because it's been that long, you know? 
And those movies look surprisingly better than most of the newer stuff. I don't know the way they're, the older movies are shot and stuff. They're just brighter, more vibrant. They use that know. tobacco filter on the first one that gives LA a beautiful look, that sun-drenched, orange-kissed look. Mm-hmm. I love the way the first movie looks. Yeah, they don't do a lot of uh, stuff like that anymore. That that um, Michael Bay-ish type um, <clears throat> heavily filtered stuff. They don't, they don't do it anymore. It's too cleaned you know? up now. And I'm not talking about digital filters. I'm talking about filters on the camera you know um gradients and whatnot that 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 are adjusted and moved just to to the horizon just to the the skyline and stuff to do that stuff it's fucking awesome looking it's beautiful and they a lot of smoky scenes too a lot of rooms backlit with smoke you know to give something yeah. a little more atmospheric quality which you don't yeah. quite read so well yeah. on high definition video well, that's going to wrap up our episode on Tokyo Drift. We want to thank you guys for taking a look back at the third entry in mm-hmm. the series, our third retrospective for 2023, <laughs> where we are only looking at third entries. It's a lot of threes, my man. Only number threes. What are we doing next? I don't know. We're going to have to discuss this because I have a list here I want to go over with you off There's air. a lot of them. And uh, we'll leave it as a surprise for the listeners, but we will be back with you guys shortly with another I third. Think- you had an idea? In general, we're trying to line them up, right, with uh, with stuff that's coming out, possibly franchises and whatnot, like we did with this one. That's right. So Fast and Furious 10 is going to be coming out soon. Indiana Jones 3 will be coming, or the new Indiana Jones will be coming out soon, so we'll be releasing something to coordinate right. with that, yeah. as well as Mission Impossible, and then a whole bunch of ones that you guys aren't expecting. So keep a lookout. We want to thank you guys all for joining us. We have a worldwide audience. Hello to you all in Australia, Cambodia. Uh, the United Kingdom, you know, everybody out there, including the United States. Thanks for listening, guys. Speaking for Trevor Anderson, I'm Jason Rugard, and we are the Movie Mavericks. Mm-hmm. And if hit NOS at right time, no candy fence. 